1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue with my guest today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Michael Engel. We will be discussing his new book, Elijah del Medigo and Paduan Aristotelianism, Investigating the Human Intellect, published in London by Bloomsbury Academic Publishing 2017. Michael is a research associate at the Institute for Jewish Philosophy and Religion at the University of Hamburg in Germany. Michael, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
2: Thank you, Ari. Thank you for having me. To begin, um,
1: kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to study philosophy in general and uh, medieval philosophy and pre-modern Jewish philosophy in particular?
2: Well, um, I was born and I grew up in, in Israel to um, what in the Israeli context you will call and perhaps the North American as well. Secular Jewish uh, family and secular Jewish background. So, and I think it was even more um, secular than the average secular uh, Mm -hmm. Israeli family. So, really, I I, I know holidays were, I mean, the major holidays you would you would have to also at school, etc. But the atmosphere in the house was very a religious. Mm That's but. Since I remember myself, I always had this um, philosophical tendency. So I was always curious about the big questions. So what is this? Is there is a pers- purpose for existence, for our existence, existence in general? Um, what is this world? How come there is, as Heidegger said, so... I realized Heidegger asked, how come there is something rather than nothing, something like that. And I really had this particular thought when I was, I don't know, three or four, I think. So um, not, not to say I was particularly bright, but I was definitely, um, I had this philosophical orientation. And then as I grew and when it was time to choose a career, it was very natural for me to, um, to go and study philosophy i really couldn't think of any other field that would attract me um, the way that philosophy did and to answer the second half of your question it's somehow related to that I, I i always had this sort of religious um inclinations or religious sentiments um and i had no no place to express them because as I said my family was very a religious and I also I did not want to transform my life or my existence into so if we think about the religious tradition it it does require certain transformations which I mean I wasn't really uh, attracted but I did want to have more religiosity in my life and for me academia was a way of sort of bringing these two inclinations. so this urge after philosophical themes and questions and and the religious so these two uh, huge uh, uh, trends met most naturally in the medieval tradition both in the jewish so in the jewish world but also in the christian and muslim world and this inspired me so first of all to st- i mean hebrew is my was my first language native language but to study latin and arabic as well and to sort of dive into this world of medieval spirituality, medieval philosophy. Yeah, so it was, sorry, a long uh, answer to a short question, but the, the, the bottom line is that it really, um uh, it was a very personal thing, and, and it still is. So what drives me is still this great spiritual, let's say, interest that I have in these traditions.
1: What inspires you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain for it? from it
0: um,
2: so w- what inspired me to write this book was really the this the elijah del Medigo so he is the protagonist of my book and um he was a jewish philosopher living in the 15th century and he tried to to in his own way find the answers to the big questions of life yeah about existence about the meaning of human existence about how should we live about what is fundamentally the components of 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 this of this world and um and we will touch upon that as the podcast goes on but but his character and the fact that he lived between these two worlds, the the Hebrew and the Latin or the Jewish and the Latin, he was just, he seemed a fascinating figure. He wrote works that no one prior to me had or very few had studied seriously. So also academically, it was a good opportunity to to sort of dive into, into him. So yeah, th- th- that was the initial uh, uh, cause. And then ever since, and I mean, that was 12 years ago, I think when I first encountered Delmedico and still today I'm writing and editing his works and there's enough work for an, in, an entire lifetime. So um, it was a good decision, I think. <clears throat> what are the key postulates of
1: Elijah Delmedico's book to investigations, which is the focus of your book? what does two investigations argue state and claim
2: okay so so we had the correspondence before the podcast and i sort of knew that you are going to or we we spo- the said we said that perhaps this question will come up and it's difficult to give an answer that will not take an hour and a and a half so i, I would really try to really give the essentials and then hopefully we can sure because it is very complex and and the first thing to say about this book the two investigations is that it is a commentary a sort of a commentary and it's a commentary on a commentary and the book underlying these commentaries is aristotle's on the soul the animal And in the De Anima, Aristotle um, um, articulates his view concerning um, the human soul and the human intellect. And then later, perhaps we can open this up. What what is for Aristotle the soul and the intellect? And... At some crucial points of the book, Aristotle is being very typically Aristotle's manner. He's being very succinct and he's choosing formulations that you can understand here and there. And there is one major part in the the Anima* um, 3.5 where Aristotle discusses the nature of the human intellect. And this small passage received numerous... Interpretations and commentaries. And one of these commentaries, interpretations, was before Del Medigo by a Muslim philosopher called Ibn Rushd, or in its Latinized name, his <coughs> Latinized name, Averroes. So Averroes wrote a commentary on this passage in the, the De Anima, which became very famous and very controversial. And Del Medigo's two investigation, so the book that I've studied, is a commentary on Averroes's commentary on this passage of the mm-hmm. Dianima so structurally that's uh, uh, that that is what the book is about and then you asked about the postulates or the main ideas Um, is there any part? so how would you like me to start or just um, <clears throat> um
1: I'm grateful for your interpretation of Okay. The core idea. So if you could maybe offer a synopsis or share the key themes. Okay.
2: So basically, um, as I said, the question is the nature of the human intellect. And the intellect for Aristotle and for the medieval tradition in general. More or less similar to how today we understand uh, concepts such as, as mind, perhaps, w- would be the most accurate uh, modern equivalent. It's just the manner through which we have access or we gain um, general concepts, yeah? as opposed to particular sensory reception. Intellect is the thing through which we think abstract thoughts. So not this or that particular dog, but the notion of a dog. In general and to make an extremely and complicated long story uh, short and really having to cut out some very major but I, if, if I really have to uh, what is most uh, crucial here in, in Aristotle himself is the, that for Aristotle unlike our other bodily uh, uh, functions the intellect has an eternal aspect in it in it or the intellect is eternal why again several answers are given or hinted both by aristotle and his uh, commentators but one major idea is that <clears throat> because thoughts are eternal the intellect is eternal and i i find this thought to be very sort of thought provoking and 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 and, um, and inspiring today so Again, if you think about this or that person, they are in place and time. And there. But if you think about the notion of humanity or about a human in general, this notion transcends time and place. And when I am engaging in a thought about a general concept, universal, by definition, I transcend my... Um, my corporal and temporal conditions. Yeah? I sort of, I conjoin with something or I touch something which is eternal. So this is a basic Aristotelian uh, intuition. And as you can imagine, when, when Aristotle was translated into Latin, into Hebrew, and, and it got to the hands of the Latins and the, of the Christians and the Jews in the Middle Ages, this is, this is uh, um, something that really caught their attention because this could be either competing or it could go together with traditional monotheistic perceptions of immortality. So the basic idea is that through developing our intellect and gaining or collecting abstract thoughts, the more we do that, the more we develop the immortal aspect of us. And then um, for some Christian and, and, and Hebrew commentators, this really meant that we can work on how to become immortal, and this is not through some mystical conjunction, or th- it's just simply through the development of your intellect. And Del Medi goes, sorry. So this is the very general um, background. And again, I will try to to put it in a sentence or two. I mentioned before that this was Aristotle, and then there was Ibn Rushd, <clears throat> and Ibn Rushd said. That because, so for reason that again, perhaps we could speak about later, for Ibn Rush, there is just one intellect shared by all human beings. So the intellect is not only uh, 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 eternal, it's also universal. So every time you or I are engaged in an intellectual uh, um, activity, we are actually... Uh, partaking in the activity of this one common uh, intellect. This came to be known as the Unicity Thesis, or the Single Intellect Thesis, and this was one of the most controversial theses of the Middle Ages. And Medigos book is basically an attempt to defend this thesis. Okay, so this was a bit long and complicated, but but I really sort of uh, covered it up in terms of what the, the, the book is about. Del Medigos book is an attempt to defend a thesis which, which claims that we all share in the activity of a single intellect. There is no your or my intellect, we all share in the activity of mine. And what is yours or mine is everything which is below the intellect, i.e. sensory experience, our images, our imagination. But when it comes to the formulation of general concepts, we all share the activity of single intellect. So that's the main um, idea or that's the main attempt of the book, but we can discuss further the many, many aspects which are associated with it.
1: How does your book advance our understanding of Jewish philosophy in the Renaissance? So
2: um, the thing with, as I said, the thing with Delmedigo was that he was a Jew indeed, but he was a Jew living in Northern Italy in Padova. He himself was born in Crete, so in a Greek speaking community, which was under Venetian rule and he was trying to defend a Muslim philosopher against the attack, attacks of other Catholic authors. So what I'm trying to say, he lived in an in a extremely, um, what's the English word? Colorful or, or varied uh, cultural context. And this is one thing that I try to show in the book and in my studies on Del Medigo of how just how rich the background, background was and how difficult and perhaps this is something about uh, Jewish philosophy in the Renaissance or Jewish existence in the Renaissance that's for some of these figures, uh, you are almost, um, I don't know if doing harm is the word, but how difficult it is to reduce them into something which is essentially Jewish and only Jewish because Del Medigo the book reflects also his Jewish identity, but it reflects uh, much more than that. So so ironically, perhaps, to answer your question, my book points to the fact that Jewish intellectual existence in the Renaissance shouldn't be only viewed through this uh, prism of, of Jewish philosophy or Jewish existence. So it's a bit paradoxical, but some things in life are paradoxical. Why were
1: Elijah Del Medigo's relations with Padua's Jewish community strained? What is the relevance of this background to our understanding of the writings of Del Medigo? Why was he on bad terms with local Jews?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned in my book, Del Medigo was, I mean, there is not much evidence, but the evidence that we have is, is, uh, some of it is almost um, funny also about his, his tense relations with his and to again try to relate it to what I said before as I try to show in this book and also in his other writings del Medigo really tries to show um that this Averro this Averroists so these commentaries of Averroes on Aristotle were the right way of understanding Aristotle and that we should understand Aristotle through the lens of Averroes. In other words, he was reading, Del Medigo was interested in the writings of a pagan philosopher, Aristotle, and he was reading him through the lens of a Muslim author, Ibn Rushd. For the uh, 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 traditionally oriented Jews of Padova, that was probably something which was sort of exceeded their uh, referential framework. So this was something that was probably for Jews who were so, you know, traditional Jewish learning, Talmud, and when it comes to sort of more superior, so um, more oriented towards Kabbalah, they had a hard time probably accommodating someone like Del Medigo. And for Del Medigo himself, he simply thought that the, the manners and the beliefs and the practices of the Jews living in Padova where he lived were simply, I mean, he's using the word ridiculous, childish, superstitious. And for someone who was uh, um, philosophically oriented like Del Medigo, it was something that for him was very difficult to handle. May I just get one anecdote, which I really, I really like in that regard. Del Medigo refers to the minhag of Tashlich, which is when you go in Rosh Hashanah and you throw your sins into um, so some, some sort of a water, um, like a, a, a lake or a river. And he's just, in few words... And he's not doing that often. So the, the, the treatise is really, really philosophical in arguments. But here and there, you have this biographical uh, mention. And he said, you know, there are these Jews in, in Padova, and I've seen them. And in Rosh Hashanah, they go to the river and they throw away their sins to the, to the river. And then they do not eat the fish because they believe that the fish have eaten their sins. And these are the people that I have to deal with. So he's being very dry. And very ironic, but it's very clear that for him, this type of superstitious Jewish existence, it's just something which is very difficult for him to accommodate. And and by the way, these Jews were mostly Ashkenazi Jews, so descended from Germany. So from centers that historically were less um, open or less exposed to philosophical literature. And Del Medigo came, as I said, from Crete and he had access to Sephardic materials and he, started, he was in Padova. So he was just much more oriented within a non-Jewish. So this tension between a traditionalist uh, Jewish existence, the Padovan, and the more universalist u- university-oriented Del Medigo led apparently to some serious tensions, as it is. I don't want to be too vulgar, but to an extent... If you look at Israel, I'm not sure in North America, but you still have this tension between a traditionally oriented Jewish existence and um, Jewish individuals who are trying to walk in more advanced paths first. Again, I, I was very simplistic, but yeah.
1: <clears throat> what is the relationship between Aristotelianism and the writings of aristotle himself in what ways was renaissance aristotelianism an accurate reflection of the specific views held by aristotle in what ways did renaissance aristotelianism reinterpret or correctly interpret the aristotle of greek antiquity in what ways did it represent or misrepresent the aristotle of greek antiquity are there any aspects of medieval and Renaissance Aristotelianism against which Aristotle himself might protest.
2: Um, So to give a very, uh, to answer just the last of your, uh, so probably Aristotle would protest against some of the interpretations uh, given to his words and works and to again try to give a relatively short answer when we speak about Renaissance Aristotelianism, we, we, we need to think about like temporal layers. So you have Aristotle's Aristotle himself, and then throughout generations, Aristotle's was commented upon nonstop, more or less, from late antiquity up until the Renaissance and beyond. And um, so if we speak about Renaissance uh, Aristotelianism, we speak about the 15th, 16th century, what it means, it's so. To we need to keep two, two or three aspects in mind. First of all, these are protagonists or commentators of Aristotle, and they have a very long history of commentators before them. So, if you're writing, if you're a Renaissance Aristotelian in the fifteenth or sixteenth century, you had uh, Thomas Aquinas writing on the writing on the thirteenth century. You had even Rush writing on the twelfth, and then you had earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, commentators and and schools. So you have a huge mass of literature available to you in the Renaissance on Aristotle. And the second thing to remember is that um, we are speaking after, right after the invention of print. So there was great availability of these sources. Um, so, So you could read a lot and you could be informed by different uh, forms of Aristotelianism. And the third thing to remember is, again, we speak about the Renaissance, so there was this back to the, back to the classics, and Aristotle was um, printed in Greek after he was written in Latin throughout the Middle Ages. So you have the new, so to speak, Greek Aristotle, and many of his Greek commentators were discovered. So uh, this is a highly complex map, so just to simplify it, to someone like Del Medigo in the Renaissance, he had at his disposal an amazing uh, wealth of materials of which um, he made use. And um, yeah, and this wealth and this willingness to, to confront this wealth and to try to say something original in life, that's like a strong... Uh, um, characteristic of of renaissance philosophy and in that del Medigo, i think i hinted to that before although he was um jewish and so self-proclaimed and and he's always saying well uh, my real belief and i'm 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 a good jew and 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 he really speaks about my money that's in this context him being a follower of my money so although he was so self-proclaimed jew and he had no problem with identifying himself as a Jew. Philosophically, I would say that what really characterizes him is what I just said. Living in the Renaissance in an era when there is this uh, wealth of materials and Del Medigo swimming in this literature, being able to read Aristotle in in all possible languages, perhaps not Arabic. And yeah, so that's a very exciting... um, that was an exciting area to live in and an exciting era to research. What
1: do you mean by Paduan Aristotelianism, such as in your title? Yeah. What was unique about Aristotelianism in Padua vis-a-vis Aristotelianism elsewhere?
2: As a label, and again, there are many discussions, but Padua, so Padua, the, the, city, the Italian city of Padua, and more exactly the University of Padova. Like other um, Italian universities. So, grosso modo, in general, it was less affected by, um, by church considerations and pressure by the church. And Italian universities, and Padova in particular, there was a culture of studying Aristotle in its own terms. And Ibn Rushd's interpretation of Aristotle, that as I said before, there is only one intellect shared by all of us. Um, this is something that in Padova people felt free or professors felt free to profess or to teach, although it seems to contradict many religious um, tenets and principles. And the Medigo belonged to this tradition. He was not in the university. He was Jewish and apparently at that time, it was still impossible for him to enroll in the university. But it was part of this Paduan culture in which people could say Aristotle said this and that and that, not caring too much if it contradicted their religious belief, be it Jewish or Christian.
1: Yeah. In what ways was Jewish Aristotelianism different in character from Islamic Aristotelianism and Christian Aristotelianism? In what ways was Elijah Del Medigo similar to or different from? Christian and Muslim readers of Aristotle in his time
2: this is a, a very complex question and um, I, the a way to approach it would be there are many ways of I, I mean what what were the differences etc but I would say it's something which I think holds is most relevant about the in all three religions and it's again sort of returning to what I said in the past. In all three religions, people who are interested in Aristotle, and again, this is a very almost vulgar uh, uh, distinction, but I think it holds. You can divide it into two. People who are interested in, Delme- in Aristotle and try to somehow bring it together with their own religious beliefs, and people who are interested in Medigo for its own sake. And this uh, and it's in its own terms, regardless of their religious identity. And we spoke about it a bit before the podcast. And someone who tries to harmonize Judaism and philosophy in the Jewish tradition, perhaps is Maimonides, the most famous example. Um, In the Latin tradition, it's of course Aquinas is a very famous um, example. So um, Maimonides, for example, would try to sh- show how Aristotelianism can help us explain um, the nature of the commandments, the Jewish commandments. Aquinas would, and it's very complex, but Aquinas would try to show how Aristotelianism, if not explained always, but can sort of uh, be harmonized with uh, the basic beliefs of the Catholic tradition. So, Del Medigo, in that sense, belongs to those who don't try to marry. So, although Del Medigo was Jewish, when he's writing about Aristotle, what he cares and what his arguments cetera, are taken from the Aristotelian corpus. He doesn't try to harmonize it with his Jewish identity. And in that, he can employ someone like Ibn Rushd, of Eos, who is doing the same, who is also discussing um, Aristotle using Aristotle's own terms so to speak so i that's why i'm saying that it's difficult to simply identify uh, del Medigo with jewish aristotelianism it's first it's important first to make this division within jewish aristotelianism and then i think Albalag, which we discussed before i think also belong to this camp together with aristotle uh, t- together with del Medigo, that jewishness is not necessarily a component within their philosophical existence or uh, activity. So I hope it somehow answers the question.
1: <clears throat> Where do you situate your book among existing scholarship on Averroes and Jewish interpretations of his writings?
2: That's a good question. I mean, um, ironically, again, Delmedigo wrote in Hebrew, but he he what he he was he was writing in hebrew but he was thinking latin and the controversies that he's participating in and the protagonists that he's mentioning and the debates that he's trying to affiliate himself to are all very much within the christian um Paduan environment of the 15th century so I would actually, and I'm translating the Medigo now into English. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is that people who work on the Latin tradition and who cannot read Hebrew will have access to his works because I think that actually, from a philosophical perspective, he belongs more to the Latin Averroist tradition than to the Jewish one, I have to say. Um, And he's mentioning the Latin Latin authors and Christian authors much more often than he does Jewish authors. So I have to say that, again, although he was Jewish, um, working on Del Medigo situates me more uh, in the Christian camp, which is a problem, I have to say. Academically, also a sociological problem, almost. So I'm, I'm really divided between, so I'm just... They're door between two worlds but worlds but at the end of the day it's yeah it's more the latin christian philosophical tradition that I feel professionally i mean affiliated to is it an
1: accurate assessment to hold that averroes had a greater impact on judaism than on islam why or why not To what extent was Averroes appropriated differently in Judaism than by Islam? Does this owe to social considerations in Jewish history? Or is there more compatibility between Jewish religious texts, such as the Bible, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Halakha, and the ideas of Averroes? In other words, does the corpus of Jewish religious literature make Jewish thought and philosophy more amenable to an Averroistic worldview than Islamic literature, or was it social? Was it the social situation that Jews found themselves in that made Averroists more amenable to a Jewish worldview? Um, mm. What accounts for the different reception of Averroists in Judaism relative to Islam?
2: So thank you for your question. For this question, it also perhaps allows us to speak a bit about this Averroes and his thought and his because it was a bit. Um, mm. I'm not sure that I made it clear enough in what I said before. So uh, the thing uh, this I have said several times that Ibn Rushd Averroes had really this tendency of um, of uh, reading, trying to read Aristotle in its own terms without trying to compromise it with his as a of a religious belief. Or at least that's the way that Ibn Rushd is being read. So for example, the idea is that we all have, there. there is only one intellect, that means that there is no personal immortality. Because if the intellect is the immortal part of man and there is only one intellect, how does this coincide with uh, personal immortality? This is one. Another idea, which was very controversial, was the eternity of the world. So apparently, Averroes in his commentary on Aristotelian physics thought that Aristotle taught us that the world is eternal and and that is the philosophical truth. And um and that is for some that is the truth. And then if the world is etern- eternal, how what should we do with the notion of creation? How can we speak about creation if the world is eternal? In other words, these are radical theses from a religious point of view. The question why, so two things to say. These ideas of Averroes, these interpretations, they never really became very popular in no um, religious tradition as such. In Judaism, we have many manuscripts of uh, Averroes' commentaries. We know of Individuals who studied him and were very interested, etc. But we don't have an Averroist school, and we, there is no, uh, there is no like you have the Kabbalah, then you have a Jewish Averroism. You you cannot compare the two. So it never really uh, made an impact such as Kabbalah on Judaism. It was more isolated attempts which left their mark and are interesting and are still studied today. That's true. But if you go to yeshiva today, or if you speak, I don't know, people who are just interested in Judaism, whether they're Jews or not, most likely that most of them never read Averroes or that they've never heard of him. So it didn't really help to shape Judaism. It was a cultural uh, phenomenon within Jewish history, but it didn't really affect the, um, let's say, the core literature or the canonic literature of judaism as such and it's more complicated within the latin world but also there it all Averroism, avarois and Averroism as such was always considered to be the, the radical option practiced and taught by few and it never and it was actually condemned actively by the church in various occasions in paris and in padova during the uh, middle Ages. in islam we know that it had absolutely no effect and this has also with a uh, uh, historical circumstances in andalusia where avarez had lived and i i don't know enough about that to really give an authorized account but i do know that this is a historical fact that even uh, rust also had very little um impact upon islam so I wouldn't say that there is something in Judaism that makes, that made the reception of Herodes more more easy or more smooth. I would say that his interpretations are fascinating. Aristotle is fascinating. These are um, thought-provoking arguments and ideas about basic philosophical and scientific uh, questions. And when these were circulated, it simply makes sense that people got interested with them and wanted to explore them. And, and this, But this is true for the Jewish uh, world as it is to the Latin world. Yeah, in, of course, in Hebrew and Latin translations. But in both cases, in both word, worlds, it remained a marginal phenomenon. So again, a long answer, but I hope that now it's a bit more. Uh, Thank you more yeah clearer so i mean in light of
1: this response that you shared what were the religious and theological implications of aristotelianism and averoism in the renaissance and the late medieval world how did aristotelianism and Averroism enable thinkers and adherents to these worldviews to reconceive of scripture and reconceive of God.
2: Aristotle gave a very broad uh, worldview. So Aristotle wrote about logic, about physics, about metaphysics, about ethics, and a very um, um, sort of an established worldview, which was really thought through and commented upon. And it was very attractive to engage with. Moreover, from a certain point in time, it's not only that Aristotle was interesting, Aristotle was also the prevalent scientific worldview to an extent, to a large extent, re- relied on the uh, works of Aristotle. So the stru- structure of the universe, the position of the plants and of the stars, uh, and the constitution of the human body and of the human soul. Scientifically, these positions in European universities were based on Aristotelian Work. So, <clears throat> to an extent, if you were living in the Middle Ages, you were an Aristotelian. The question was, how far are you willing to take Aristotelianism? And Aquinas is really the, the best example, and he was really, and he's still today, I think, the f- official, unless it has changed in the last few tens or hundreds of years, the official f- philosopher of the Catholic Church. And what, Arist- what Aquinas is, is saying is that, well, Aristotle is teaching us something about the nature of the world, but when it comes to the creation of the world, or when it comes to the destiny of the human soul, or when it comes to the Trinity or transubstantiation, here we cannot turn to Aristotle. So Aquinas is really trying to combine Aristotelian worldview regarding this world with a Catholic view regarding the world to come. That's a traditional Aristotelian medieval perception the Averroism is again simply put and again I'm making almost a parody or it, that's <clears throat> was actually the way it was criticized but to an extent there is something in this um, criticism Aver- what, what is Averroism? One definition of Averroism is simply taking Aristotle too far or, or taking Aristotle too seriously or implying Aristotelian logic also in places that you should not so, again, creation, it's not only to accept Aristotle's view about what we find in this world, the constitution of the human body, of, of, of uh, animals, of yeah, because Aristotle wrote also works on biology, etc., but it also to take Aristotle's view concerning creation and the eternity of the world. And the dispute between Averroists and non-Averroists or Thomists or whoever, some it was not it was never in the, in the universities at least, it was never about, we don't want to hear about this Aristotle, but it was more like a stop signs to the very saying, okay, till here, you are taking it too far. And what I was trying to say before is that in un- Italian universities and Padova being a symbol in a way of this culture, there was no this stop sign and, and professors and students could take Aristotle as far as they could. And then but to answer the criticisms from the Thomists, these are very said, well, we take Aristotle, we don't want to compromise the Aristotelian logic. We take him as far as we can. So in order to try and accommodate Aristotle and Catholic uh, uh, worldview, instead of that, we're doing something much more elegant. And this is sometimes referred to the two truths, the, the double truth theory. Which says there is the Aristotelian truth and there is the Catholic truth, and it's like two parallel roads, and don't try to mix them. You yeah? it's almost like a pro- proto-postmodern, if if you like. <laughs> so, yeah, and and there is a whole debate whether this thing, but actually, my conclusion, going back to Delmedigo, that Delmedigo is a good example of this um, approach because when he's studying the the human soul and the intellect and the the creation of the world, the Medigo is not trying to mix Jewish or religious belief with Aristotelianism, but in in one place, he's saying it very explicitly, he says, everything that I've written to you, this is Aristotle and it's good to know Aristotle, And when your non-Jewish neighbor makes fun of you, that you tell him, I know Aristotle as much, and so it has polemic purposes, and it's useful in many ways. So it's good that you know Aristotle. But do not think that I believe this stuff. My belief and my is the belief of Israel and of Moses, etc. And then, of course, one wonder how sincere is Del Medico, because... If you don't believe, and if, if this is just, well, you spent a lot of time, you spent your life invest, investigating Aristotle. So you spend your life just to be able to tell your neighbor that, so again, it's a highly, highly complex and contested issue. But again, to return to your uh, original question, if I remember it, Aristotle was everywhere. And the question, the difference between Averrois and the non-Averroist was again, how far and how serious? And to which areas were you taking Aristotle and um, applying his logic and teachings?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: What are the similarities and differences between the perspectives presented in Medico's work, Two Investigations, and those presented in his other major work, Bechi Nat Hadat? Can you comment on the ideas presented in Bechi Nat Hadat? What are its primary lessons and to what degree is the other book two investigations that we've been discussing a continuity of its worldview?
2: Yeah so actually I thought about it afterwards um that it's the other so the that was written after um, um okay. after the two investigations so I mean I mean but you can't speak of continuity even if it's so- sure
1: yeah so yeah I mean I could rephrase the question to what degree is, um, is two investigations, a continuity of the ideas in Berinata Dat. What are the similarities and differences?
2: Yeah,
1: between the so world. It, it was
2: just a, it came to my mind when I read again the questions. Uh, okay, but it's but it's, it's a very good um, and it in a way it really relates to what I've just said. And again, Berinata dat is um um. I mean, others have studied this work more than I have, and we also spoke about it before. And I, Personally, I'm less, or I was less interested in Bechinat Dat because there, Bechinat Dat is a book that Del Medigo wrote when he went back to Candia, to Crete. And Hinata Dat is more or less an attempt to explain to the Jewish community, what was I doing in Italy all these years among these Catholics? So, The medical left for Italy when he was very young. He came back to Candia, where apparently he also died. And it's a very, um, it's uh, apologetic to an extent at least. It's really an apologetic work trying to say, I did, uh, you know, I studied philosophy and I did all that, but Judaism is, uh, you can really, um, if you examine Judaism from a philosophical perspective, it's a much more sound religion than Christianity because in Christianity, you have all these ideas of transubstantiation and the Trinity, et cetera, which goes against physics and goes against logic. Whereas in Judaism, Judaism you can really not reduce it, but at least it doesn't contradict philosophical uh, premises. And um, I think as I try to really make clear in what I said before, this reasoning is quite alien to what he did in Italy. So in Italy, he was really doing Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy, and here and there comments about Judaism, but in no way was Judaism the heart of his uh, occupation. And he wasn't trying to um, to appear even as a Jewish uh, uh, apologist or, Whereas Bechinata, that, the historical context, it just seems a completely different type of work. I am, I've actually written an article where I suggest that, perhaps in this case and also in other cases, maybe sometimes we shouldn't try to harmonize the, the, the views or even the works of a philosopher, because if words are written in a completely different context, then maybe he's trying to do something else or his motivation is different and his sincerity, maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe So it's almost like it's written by two different authors, although, I mean, I have colleagues who disagree with me and they try to point on the similarity. But again, I would say that Bechinata Dat is a much more Jewish work and therefore, from a philosophical perspective, it's less engaging because it it seems that there he has an aim there. <clears throat> on what
1: grounds did the Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas challenge Averroes' philosophy and theology? How did this critique impact Elijah Del Medigo? And on what grounds did Del Medigo challenge Aquinas' philosophy and theology with respect to Averroes? Would Del Medigo Del McDigo's critique of Aquinas have extended to Christianity in general and Christian theological philosophy in general, more broadly, or is this specifically a response to Aquinas in particular?
2: Um so again, to answer the second half, um Averroes, very so uh, already in the 13th century, although he was a Muslim, Averroes became a household name within Latin Christian philosophy. So the debate between the Averroists and the Thomists, which is the debate that I'm trying to, in my book, and also actually in an article I'm writing now, and for the last, again, 12 years, that's really something that always I keep returning to. This debate between Averroes and Thomists is an inner... Christian d- debate different sects within Christianity <clears throat> so when and uh, when we spoke about renaissance philosophy, that's the beauty of it so we have a jew elijah del Medigo, aligning with averes but de facto aligning with a uh, sect within Christianity against another sect which is right? it's uh, almost hilariously uh, 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 mixed up and again that's the beauty of it Regarding Aquinas and Averis, that's, again, books have been written. And as I said, it's something that I'm trying to study. And it's, again, something which is very, it's a very complex uh, um, theme. You mentioned my book. In my book, there are several chapters, I think, dedicated to that, because that's really... And to try and simplify things, in the context of the Medigo, it's really, again, about this idea that the... um, we all share a single intellect, or there is one single intellect in which activity we all share. And basically, Aquinas is saying to those who follow Ibn Rushd, well, if you are saying that, that's completely insane. It goes against every basic religious, more specifically Christian belief, because if there is only one intellect, and the intellect is what gives us immortality. And moreover, we are punished and rewarded for our deliberate actions, which are made through our intellect. So if you turn all this to a universal, to a single substance, we cannot speak about reward and punishment, we cannot speak about immortality, you are undergrounding Christianity. Moreover, Aquinas says, also philosophically, what you are saying is unattainable, because. and then he goes into a series of Sort of complicated philosophical arguments. And Del Medigo, the in the two investigations, Del Medigo is trying to answer Aquinas, although he's not mentioning not even once in his name, which is fascinating. But I've managed to show in the book, like you go back to the works of Aquinas, and it's, it's without doubt that it's with Aquinas that he's engaging. And <clears throat> Del Medigo is simply trying to show that. Um Aquinas' crit- criticism of Averroes is um, unfounded. And to say what Aquinas says, that <clears throat> God simply creates our intellects and places the intellect in human in the human fetus before it, it is born, Del Medico says the, uh, this is more than or less than laughable. So, this is not philosophical, and it's not, it doesn't hold, and it's, it's a ridiculous idea. And basically, it's sort of a to-and-fro between uh, Del Medigo and those who follow Aquinas about what is the correct interpretation of um, Aristotle.
1: Can you comment on previous and existing scholarship on Elijah Del Medigo, other than and prior to your book? What is different about your presentation of Del Medigo vis-a-vis other articles and books on him?
2: Um, So Del Medigo was studied already in the 19th century and until today, and this is something that also I write in the introduction to the book and also in at least in one or I think two articles. And what I try to show is that, um, well, Del Medigo really liked Aristotle, i.e. he liked philosophy, he liked rationality. And scholars have really picked up on that, especially at the time when Judaism was, or the study of Judaism was formulated as um, as, um, as, a science. So scholars have said, ah, and we had this Elijah del Medigo, who in the 15th century um, um, uh, said that Judaism is more rational than Christianity and he really liked etc 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 so what I'm trying to say is that scholars have often um, employed Del Medigo in the context of pointing to the rational components of Judaism so again in, in a sort of a polemical apologetic political polemical context and my it's I mean my work and also Giovanni Licata and other scholars who are now working on Del Medico and um, we are more interested with his philosophy with his interpretations of Averroes, uh, of, of his philosophical ideas um, of positioning him within the history of Aristotelian tradition and less so in the context of um, let's say Jewish apologetics so that would be i would say that's something that sort of separate separates my work from those who came before me and this also and most of these studies of that i mentioned most of them focused on the hinata dad, so this apologetic work and almost no works were written on studies on the his purely philosophical like the two investigations <laughs> In light of what you alluded to,
1: in er, specifically yeah. the, the the reception of Elijah del Medigo in Wissenschaft des Judentums, I, guess, I was curious I if you could say more about how Elijah del Medigo was received and appropriated during the Haskalah. What influence did he have on Jewish Maskelim? To the extent of your knowledge, how were his writings interpreted? <laughs>
2: Um, so, um, he was, I mean, and I sort of, yes, I alluded to it uh, before, both by German, but also by um, by Italian, so Italian masculine, because it, it, the medical was uh, operating in um, Italy, and two names I can think of now are Ducas and Reggio from Italy. So they um, really celebrated and they appropriated him as what I said before, so he's an exemplar of Jewish rationalism, but even more so as a a fierce combater or a soldier against uh, Kabbalah and Kabbalistic ideas. And that's really an important point because Del Medigo is in many places in his works he's sort of Polemicizing against uh, Kabbalistic interpretations of the Torah, although it's a very complex, and Kalman Bland has written on it that probably the Medigo thing that what the Kabbalists, like the ancient, the original Kabbalists, meant was more or less the, the same like uh, true philosophy, but he didn't like the Kabbalists and like Christian Kabbalah and things that were going on in Italy during the Renaissance, during his time. So these scholars have picked um, the medical in order to say, ah, we have here a Jewish Aristotelian who was also very anti kabbaline And you can really, I think in my book, I don't remember, I think, I don't remember if it was Dukas, but you have some, uh, this Wissenschaft des Studentum scholar, scholar 19th century, you're saying, finally, we have a real exemplar of so- someone who is writing against this nonsense, Kabbalistic nonsense. And El Medigo in Beginata is also trying to um, so the idea that Sefer Zohar was Book of Zohar was written by Shimon bar Yochai. He's trying to uh, prove or sort of philologically or contextually to show that this that could not have been the case. So um yeah, that's that's one aspect that they really liked about him, that, that he didn't apparently didn't like Kabbalah. <clears throat> Is there any
1: interrelationship between the worldview and writings of Spinoza and the, those of Del Medigo? Is there any continuity connection or overlap between their perspectives? Why or why not?
2: Well, actually, we I just discussed it with a with a Spinoza scholar yesterday at lunch. And um we are actually thinking of doing maybe something about I mean so there have been studies about Spinoza and the Medigo. We know that Spinoza most likely have read the Medigo. though. I think it is at that, that he has read. Um, and, um, one second, sorry. Sorry ahead here. Okay. Um, and, um, um, so, so as I said, he probably read Del Medico. We're not sure which books he, he had read. But um, one aspect which I think is worth examining further, although again, people have, but I think this could, could be. It's not only Del Medico, but this whole Averroist school to which Del Medico belonged, in which, as I said before, there is only one intellect shared by all humans and um, this universality or this, uh, the fact that we are essentially one is something which perhaps could be read through a spinozistic lens. And somewhere in the second investigation, the medical has this idea, is that at a certain point in our life, we can develop a sort of a self-awareness which consists of being aware to the fact that essentially intellectually we are we all belong to the same substance. So this thing definitely smell of spinoza, but they should be studied uh, further. Yeah. There is
1: uh, there's an image in your book that I'd be curious to ask you about, appendix two on page 131. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to convey with that image? Can you explain what Appendix 2 on page 131 is trying to say?
2: So I just need to, I had it open before. Yeah. One, sorry, 131. Yeah? Yeah. 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 So I don't know, should I share the screen or? um... Uh, just, just, Just describe it. Okay. Okay. So there, I mean, the idea, again, it's, um, it has to do, I mean, so basically it's, it's an attempt to give a, a, a very simplified depiction of Del Medigo's uh, uh, worldview. And there, I mean, the main idea, which is related, I mean, if I try to relate it to what we have spoken, it's just in the case of perceiving dogs, particular dogs, it shows how in each of us, a particular image of a dog is being uh, um, created. And then uh, that this uh, particular image is transformed into a um, universal, uh, intelligible, what we call in a technical uh, uh, language, a, a universal concept of dog or uh, dogness, and I try to yeah to explain there also how this uh, comes about, um, and God is <laughs> is there as well. God is also part of this cosmological scheme. This is less uh, um it's less relevant to to the discussion that we had. But what you can nicely see, I hope, in the image is that is that again that um the the human intellect is um, um, not only a substance, which is not only independent of my concrete existence, but it's also a singular uh, entity shared by all humans. So this is what I try to convey.
1: Can you, can you tell us somewhat about John of Chendun? What is his relationship to Elijah Del Medigo? Can you describe the controversy between them?
2: Yeah, so with Gendon, I think I told you this before in the I mean, it's extremely um so maybe perhaps I won't go too much in detail into what was the nature of the actual disagreement because it's extremely technical and it has to do with the um, Nature of our cogni of of the of the thought of the thing which is thought by the intellect, so the nature of the thought, whether cognition is direct or immediate or not. So it's it really is a very technical uh, disagreement. But the point that I would like to stress is that John of Jandun was simply a 14th century Averroist, i.e., someone who really liked the works of Averroes and was Influenced by it and wrote commentaries, etc., and who was criticized fiercely by Del Medico and by other Averroes in Padova. And this is just to say, again, going back to the notion of Renaissance Aristotelianism, how varied um, the landscape and the discussions were. So it's not that everyone who followed Averroes said the, the same things or had the same interpretation. It was an extremely uh, wild field of debates, even within the Averroes camp itself, the same with Aquinas. Again, I'm writing an article now showing that also within those who followed Aquinas in the Renaissance, it was extremely um, varied. And sometimes they employed Averroes in in order to criticize other Thomists and vice versa. So um, it wasn't boring back then. What was
1: the Jewish community like in Padua in the lifetime of Elijah del Badigo can you comment on its demographics and on its social characteristics
2: yeah so again this is something that I tried to allude before and again um this is um you have for sure um bigger and more trained scholars than myself. Into this part, I mean, it's it's really a field in itself, and there are, these are people that I try to be in close close connection with and to study from them in order to contextualize the work of the medical. Which op, open brackets, I think it's always good to, um, especially in academic writing, to know one's um, limitation and not to try. I mean, some people try to 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 do everything, so I always think that specialization is good. But what I've learned from the studies of others and what I have sort of encountered also in the works of Del Medigo is what I said before that it was um, predominantly Ashkenazi. So Germany, German um, descended from German origins, very traditional uh, when it comes to sort of like spiritual training, so leaning more towards Kabbalah than to uh, philosophy and even quite hostile or the leading figures, such as uh, Rabbi Mintz, were quite hostile towards the study of philosophy. And this, as I said before, was what brought to the tensions um, also with the medical. What contribution
1: does your book make to our understanding of Jewish intellectual history? And... What is Elijah Del Medigo's legacy in Jewish intellectual history?
2: I, I really have to return here to what um I was saying before, which is something that I feel a bit uncomfortable um, about because um, um as I said, Elijah Del Medigo identified himself as a Jew. He was writing in Hebrew, he was writing some works originally in Latin and then translating them into Hebrew. He's referring to Maimonides at times. He's touching upon uh, um, religious issues. He wrote Bechinat Dat*, which is a very Jewish work. So you cannot simply diso- dissociate him and say he's not. But the way I am studying him, or what, uh, the things that interest me in his works, are exactly the things which transcend his Jewish identity. And the reason that I say that I feel almost uncomfortable is that, in a way, I'm doing him injustice, because he was a complex figure, and uh, he was a wholesome figure, and he had his Jewish identity, and he had his other identities, and he somehow managed to maintain them, as we all tried to maintain the various you know, the tensions that we have between different aspects of our identities. I am really sort of doing it wrong in that I'm really focusing on one aspect, because that's what interests me from my perspective as a historian of philosophy. So my studies of Del Medigo do not, perhaps do not directly contribute to the, our understanding of the Jewish tradition, apart from. Showing that if we too forcefully try to reduce some protagonist into a Jewish mold, we may miss out a lot from their other from from other their other aspects of the reality. So, um, I I feel that perhaps the book is is a contribution methodologically. It's sort of a contribution simply to to be to be cautious and sensitive and and um, don't try to reduce people to cultural and intellectual identities just because of of their religious biography. This, perhaps, is a sort of a contribution that my book is trying to establish. What is meant
1: by the concept of theoretical intellect, as is presented in your book, in summarizing Del Medigo's ideas? What is the relationship between the concept of theoretical intellect? and the concept of material intellect that is also developed in your book oh. and also developed by Del Medigo. And what is the relationship between these ideas and the idea of agent intellect as conceptualized by Averroes and Aristotle?
2: Yeah, so now we go back to uh, Averroes' reading of Aristotle. Again, very uh, simply and um succinctly and perhaps I should have really explained it before, but material intellect in Hebrew chobri, intellectus materialis, it's it's simply our intellect as it is in its tabula rasa mode, like ready to be disposed with new thoughts. So our intellect as a capacity. The theoretical intellect, intellectus adeptus is um or sorry, before that, the agent intellect, intellectus agent poel is the intellect qua as it is generating thoughts. So you have the intellect as it receiving thoughts and as it is generating thoughts. And the intellectus adeptus sasehelanikne, the theoretical intellect, is the total sum of the thoughts that we gain. So the this is a really key uh, concept in the theoretical in, uh, intellect because the theoretical intellect is the sum of thoughts that we gain and this is what survives our um death basically that's the immortal part of the human being
1: can you <clears throat> offer a biolog- a biographical portrait of del Medico? is anything is there anything you can share about his family, his upbringing, his childhood events in his adult life? Um, what do you know? What is known?
2: That's a very easy question because uh, we don't know almost nothing. We know that, again, from scattered biographical remarks in his works, he, he was born in Candia, in Crete and at the last quarter of the 15th century. Crete was then a Venetian colony. So Venice sort of ruled the... Uh, the islands in the Aegean, and also in the Mediterranean, including Crete. So um, he was exposed to a Jewish Sephardic culture. He probably read Ibn Rushd in Hebrew during his young years in Crete. Then he moved to Venice, Padova. He was probably, these two cities are very close to each other, so he was traveling from one to another. Then he spent some time in Florence. And Florence at that time was a place of really you know, Kabbalah and Christian Kabbalah and like more perhaps mystical Platonic tendencies. He didn't like it there. He went back to Padova, Venice, and then he was sorry. This I didn't mention. He was translating the this relation I mentioned translating the works of Ibn Rush from Hebrew into Latin at the request of some uh, notable patrons, Pico della della Mirandola, Domenico Grimani spending some time with these Christian patrons, and then going back to Crete, where he wrote this uh, Apologetic Bechinat Adat that I've mentioned, and died apparently at a young age, apparently from cancer. So he had something in his eye, I think, and it's not so clear what happened there, but he died apparently at a very young age. As we bring our dialogue
1: today to a close, do you mind sharing with us what you are working on next as your current project? Do you have anything that you are focusing on as a subsequent project?
2: Sure. So actually there are. So one, the most immediate subsequent project is um, a critical edition and an English translation of the two investigations, which I would be happy to share with you, Ari, once it's, I could send you the prototype um so this should be yeah i am now finishing the english translation which should be polished at least four times before someone can can actually read it but yeah working on it then i'm working on another with collaborating with with an Italian colleague we are uh, editing a Latin Hebrew edition of um cosmological work by del Medigo. and then uh, apart from that there are still some art articles i'm writing on del medico's thought but I'm also writing about his translations from Hebrew into Latin. And then more broadly about um, Renaissance Aristotelianism as a whole, I mean, Hebrew, Latin, there is enough work 1000 years ahead and I'm not even joking. So maybe underestimating, there is still a lot of work to be done and yeah, pushing forward. Thank you wholeheartedly for your time and
1: attention today. I could not be more grateful for everything I learned from you in this book. I'm absolutely humbled by everything you shared with me and with our listeners in our dialogue today. Um, I'm at a loss for words for how appreciative I am.
2: That's really, that's pleasure was mine.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I wish you the very best and would like to reiterate my utmost gratitude to you for everything that you invested in this book and for everything you are teaching us through it.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ari.
1: To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Michael Engel, He is a research associate at the Institute for Jewish Philosophy and Religion at the University of Hamburg in Germany. We have been discussing his book, Elijah del Medico and Paduan Aristotelianism, Investigating the Human Intellect, published in London by Bloomsbury Academic Publishing, 2021. Thank you.